want to start with a question. What are you confident you could do? For example, I'm pretty confident I could carry 50 pounds of wood from my truck to my fireplace. You say, I'm not really personally impressed. Well, that's okay. (laughs) What I mean by that is I have legs at work, I have arms at work, I have hands at work. I have everything that I need to carry the wood from my truck to the fireplace. So my question is to you, what is something you are confident you could do? Maybe for you this morning you'd say, you know what? I'm confident I could ride my bike from here to North Platte. Maybe somebody here is confident they could do that. Uh, Maybe you're confident this morning that you could do your own taxes. Maybe you're confident this morning that you could fix a broken lawnmower or a broken tractor. Maybe this morning you're certain that of all the people here, you're the most confident in your fried chicken. Or perhaps you are the most confident, you're one of those people here who are confident in the fact that you could put together the single most complex Lego set there is in the store. Maybe you have a grandchild or a child who would be confident in doing that. Some of you are very confident when it comes to instruments. You say, ah, I could play that. And some of you are very confident when it comes to your singing. And you should be. My point here is that we all have something. If you just stop and think about it, you have something that you're probably... Very confident you could do. So let me ask you another question. When's the last time you asked God for help with something you were confident you could do? When was the last time you prayed something like this? Lord, I have a sink and I have soap and I have hot water and I have hands at work, but I don't put any of my confidence in those things when it comes to doing the dishes. Instead, I put my confidence in you. When's the last time you asked the Lord, when's the last time you prayed for help for something you were confident you could do? Here in chapter 16, there's a Hebrew word. Now, I'm not typically a language guy, but this one's pretty important. There's a Hebrew word that is the word darash. Now, what that means is seek, and it's all over this chapter. In fact, it's been all over chapter 14 and 15. And the idea is here in chapter 16 that every one of Asa's follies, if you want a title of the message, we would call it Asa's follies. But every one of Asa's follies in chapter 16 are because of a failure to darash, to seek the Lord. One of the things the author of 2 Chronicles is trying to portray in chapter 16, or to get you to understand, is that seeking the Lord is critical or essential to living by faith. And what we have here in chapter 16 is an opportunity to learn some lessons from Ace's follies. We have, to, we have some lessons we can learn from his failure to darash in the latter part of his life and reign. So I have three points for you this morning. Three lessons we can learn from Asa's folly, from his failure to seek the Lord. Number one, 
Number one, resources, resources are not an excuse for not living by faith. Resources are not an excuse for not living by faith. So the story starts by telling us that Basha, the king of Israel, has decided to build a city by the name of Ramah. And he's building it in such a location, basically he's putting it right down on the main thoroughfare. Imagine somebody coming along and building a whole town on I-80. How would anybody get to the panhandle? There was, in that time, really just a few of these major trade fairways. And what what Baish is doing here is essentially cutting off the southern kingdom, or Judah, from the, the active trade routes. Now, maybe somebody could find a way into the, into, into the country, but, but they'd have to be very purposeful and wanting to trade there. It'd just be easier then for everybody to go around the southern kingdom, just straight to the northern kingdom, so they could buy and sell and trade there and with the rest of the kingdoms north of there. Now, the problem here is this. Basha is counting on Syria remaining neutral. And King Asa knows this. Now, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they've had their little skirmishes. They go back and forth from time to time. But in this political situation, Asa does not know whether Syria, or Asa is not entirely sure that Syria isn't a part of this process. It's clear from the text that Asa has some assumptions that perhaps Syria is okay with this because they're north of the northern kingdom. And so therefore, what? They would benefit from this too. There'd be more trade, more economics in their area. So now Asa has a problem. Perhaps chasing off Basha on his own was possible. But if Basha has the secret backing of of the Syrians, this is a problem. And so here, Asa decides to uh, get some money. He knows he can't beat both of them. And so what he does is he takes the treasures that we mentioned in chapter 15, all the treasures he had just put in the temple about a year or so earlier, and he takes all of them out. He sends them to the king Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. And he says, here, I give all of this to you. And he sends a note, and he says, essentially... We don't have any problems with each other. In fact, there's an old alliance I'd like to invoke. So take the money, break your allegiance with King Basha, and it works. Syria steps out of the picture. They attack the northern kingdom, letting them know that they were no longer behind what was going on. And so after Basha leaves, Asa is able to go and take over the city of Ramah. In fact, it's not even complete he is able then to take what was left of the materials and he ends up building two new cities. And so by every account, what Asa does here is a very shrewd political and practical move. doesn't really cost him very much. But then in verses 7 and 8, a prophet comes to see Asa. And the message is really clear here. He says, your pragmatic answer to your problem has cost you more than you think. The prophet says to him, you have kept, you could have kept. He says to him, you could have kept the money in the temple. You could have weakened two enemies. You could have torn down Ramah and had your two cities. 
He's saying you could have been richer, more powerful, and have actually stabilized the region. So what happened in verse 8? The idea there is Asa did not darash. He did not seek the Lord. Now I know of a church out east where a very wealthy member of that church died, left the congregation $5 million. Now most of us would take that. In fact, we'd probably have that money spent pretty quickly. Between maybe building improvements and buying some new stuff, maybe we'd send some significant bonuses to our missionaries. We'd say, you know what, let's start an after-school program. Or maybe we should build ourselves a soup kitchen. The point is, is we would have that money spent. But at this church, that $5 million brought the wheels of ministry to a halt. Suddenly, because they could pay for somebody to fix something, it was no longer necessary to ask or even have trustees. Because they could hire a multitude of pastors, many stepped out of the ministries and left it to the professionals. But then, then the money started running out. And the response was, well, we've got to cut things now. We need to save what's left of this money so we don't run out. And now ministries that we're going are stopped and guys who were pastors are laid off and the whole thing fell apart. Now before we judge that we would do any before we judge the question is would we really do any better? Money does provide us provide a, a sense of security and self-sufficiency. It would make uh, member meetings so very boring. Should we spend money? Oh yeah, we've got plenty. But think about it differently. Take a ministry like Awana. Or perhaps a ministry like Vacation Bible School or the Wild Game Feed. Maybe even the funeral meals that we do. How long does it take before we become self-sufficient? Perhaps we pray a little less for God's help. Or in our prayers, it's just a little less urgency. When it comes to those rowdy boys, we don't pray as much for help because you know what? We have experience now with rowdy boys. Perhaps those TNT girls who are awkward or perhaps silly or perhaps out of control themselves, we don't pray for them as much or pray for ourselves to minister to them because you know what we have now? Experience. Well, let's go a little bit further. How about you in your personal life? What are the things that we stop praying about or seeking the Lord about or trusting the Lord with? What have we taken and then decided we are going to put hope instead of in God, we're going to put it in ourselves or perhaps in another person? We're going to trust our physical abilities, our experience, our bank account, or something else. And all of those things we replace trusting in the Lord. So if you face a problem and you have a way or perhaps a way out or what, maybe you already have what you need to solve that problem, the warning here is do not fail to seek the Lord. Number two this morning, a second lesson we can learn from Ace's Follies is this. There is no neutrality in living by faith. 
There is no neutrality in living by faith. In verse 9, we get the conclusion of the prophet's message. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro all the earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect towards him, or darash. You have done foolishly, and because of your foolishness, the rest of the reign will be full of war. Now, we've got to break this down a little bit. First of all, God has already proven this to be true to Asa. We go back to chapter 14. Here Asa was facing a problem that there was no way he could possibly solve himself. And he called out to God. He, he sought the Lord. And God delivered him. What the prophet is saying here is this. There is no problem too big for God. But not only that. God is looking for the big moments where he can show himself to be stronger than the circumstances. Second, in chapters 14 and 15, one of the themes that is, that is uh, raised for us multiple times is that Asa, because he had sought the Lord, there was a, number of, there was a lot of peace. And the last time we talked about uh, King Asa, we saw this revival break out in the, northern, or the southern kingdom. The peace that Asa brought because he had sought the Lord was the opportunity then during that time of peace to reform the worship of God and to bring people back to him. All of that was because Asa had peace. It was all due to a time of peace. And now the prophet is saying, because of your failure to seek the Lord, because you removed the materials from the temple, and you went out and you did not act by faith, but instead by pragmatism, there will now be war. And we come to verse 10. The Bible records for us that Asa is angry. Most of us probably would be if somebody talked to us like that. And he throws the prophet in prison. The language there is the idea that Asa is angry and he's overwhelmed with his anger. He is acting out upon his anger. He is lashing out. Now the Bible tells us not only does he throw the prophet in prison, but the, he oppresses the people. Now the phrase there is connected. So what that means is that the people Asa oppressed were people who were vocalizing that what Asa had done did not please God. So if you want to think of it this way, the very people who had been brought back to God as a direct result of Asa's reforms were now the object of Asa's wrath because they were speaking out about Asa's refusal to darash or to seek the Lord. And when I say there's no neutrality between living by faith and not uh, no no neutrality in living by faith, what I mean is that there's no space between living by faith and not living by faith. You're either doing one or the other. Let me give you an example. And please understand, I'm not trying to toot my horn. It's just an example that came up in my mind. When my family and I first moved here, one of our goals, one of our giving goals for, for offerings on Sunday morning was that over the course of the year, we would give back at least one month of my salary. And actually, because of your graciousness and because of the generosity of this church towards us, it didn't take very long before we reached that goal. Now, the question was, were we going to be satisfied staying there? Or were we going to continue to try and figure out what, mean, what it meant to live by faith in this area? And so, by God's grace and mercy, we now give more than two months of my salary back every year. My point is, is not to give you, make you impressed. The idea is that there was no neutrality there. We either were going to live by faith or we were not going to. 
Let me give you a different example. What about looking for a spouse? You're either doing so by faith or not by faith. What about parenting? You're either raising your kids by faith or not by faith. A pastor is either preaching by faith or not by faith. But what does it mean to live by faith? The idea is this. First of all, to live by faith means that you're, you're learning. You're learning and you're growing and you're understanding what God has to say to you out of his words. And then that information is becoming a part of the daily decision-making process. So when you decide how much money you're going to give every Sunday, when you decide what you are and are not going to watch on television or see in the movie theaters, when it comes to whether or not you're going to help with the ministry or you're going to help bless somebody who is hurting, that decision-making process is ultimately guided by what you learn in the Word of God. That's what it means to live by faith. But the second part of living by faith is this, the reality of cost. Living by faith will always confront you with cost. For example, a decision to raise your children with a certain sexual ethic will likely cost you a relationship and likely invite a form of criticism. That time when you decide you're going to take a day off to be with your family or refuse overtime in order to go to church, you're going to help with this particular ministry. It's going to cost you money. And I'm not saying that Christians are really persecuted in any way like our brothers overseas, but the reality is our world is becoming more hostile. And which means that the cost of living by faith is only going up like the gas prices. Like milk and bread in the aisle. The cost is only going up. Now some try to figure out how they can maintain or exist in some place where they get to call themselves a a Christian but yet remain friendly to those things which are hostile. It's not possible. It's either live by faith or don't. And the reality is no generation of Christians have ever been able to avoid the cost of living by faith. That leads to an ever-present need to seek the Lord. To Darash. And then number three this morning, lastly, not living by faith is an easy habit. Not living by faith is an easy habit. At the close of this chapter, we find the man who was at the center of revival in Judah is now in need of revival himself. Verse 11 is about telling us that the author has done all of his research. He's done... He's made his notes. He's looked everything up. He's verified what he's telling us is true because it would be, in a sense, unbelievable. I'm sure you've had a moment where you have heard the news of pastor such and such and so and so who was caught doing such or some immoral thing, and you think to yourself, is that right? So the the author's telling us in verse 11, nope, this is not, not some fairy tale. This is not a parable. This is what happened. And he's telling the reader, because he wants them to see the failure of not seeking the Lord and how it became not just an instance, but a habit for Asaph. Because in verse 12, which picks up about three years later, Asa is putting, after Asa put the, the, the prophet in jail, 
It tells us that Asa becomes diseased at his feet. Now, a number of scholars have tried to figure out what this disease could be, but that's not the point of telling us. The point is this. The disease came upon Asa, and Asa had been dealing with it for a while. Perhaps the whole three years since he put the prophet in jail. Asa had a problem that would not go away. And it wasn't going away with cleverness. It was not being solved by resources like doctors. Clearly, the idea is that this disease of the feet came from God. And it was an opportunity for Asa to seek the Lord. Asa had a problem that would not be solved with money, would not be solved with with smarts, it would not be solved with anything. Yet, what does the Bible tell us? Asa does not die rush. He does not seek the Lord. Think about how similar this situation was in, from chapter 14 when Asa faced that big army that was ten times bigger than the one he had. He had no answer and he sought the Lord and he was delivered. Yet here, he doesn't do it. The final verses in the chapter are there to tell us that despite the failings of his final, final years, Asa was held in great regard by the people. The idea of ointment and great spices meant that there was great care taken, great care given of his body. The fire at the end is not the idea that he was cremated, but a memorial. If you want to think about it, think about the eternal flame that is at the grave of John F. Kennedy. They loved the man. Now, I feel very confident to say that every Christian in this room has probably had this issue in their life. I look at my life and I think, I got saved at 16, but it took almost two years before I finally stepped foot on Northland's campus to actually become a pastor. Through that time, I went this way and that way, and I followed this dream and I followed that dream, and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted, if I wanted to do what I thought God wanted me to do until God did something to get me there. Now, for you, for anybody, this, this kind of things where we become... It becomes a habit to not live by faith. It can happen for a number of different reasons. Perhaps somebody, maybe a boss, asks you to cover a shift on Sunday morning. And then suddenly you're covering every Sunday. Then suddenly it's two years since you've been in church. Or perhaps it's one busy week that turns into two busy weeks. And then suddenly... It's been months since you've opened your Bible. It's been a while since you've prayed about the issues of your life. Perhaps it's just a single event. Maybe you were going along just fine. Maybe you were thriving, loving, serving the Lord. Maybe you were excited to get up and go to church. Maybe you were excited to get up and go and help in the ministry. Then suddenly, something happened. And suddenly, it's a chore for you to wake up on Sunday morning. Suddenly you're driving to Awana or perhaps driving to Vacation Bible School and wondering if it could snow so you didn't have to go. We say our prayers just so that we can say that we said them. We read our Bibles just to say that we read them. And things from sleeping in become far more tempting than they used to be. Or perhaps taking that day trip on a Sunday becomes far more tempting than it used to be. No wonder the, the hymn writer would put it that way. He said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. 
The thing is, we don't have to fall into despair. We don't have to be crushed by the reality that we fail over and over, where we are excited one day for the things of God and perhaps for many times not excited. I want you to come back to the end of chapter 16 and see the, the, the care of Asa's body. Anointed with sweet odors and diverse spices, a king loved and revered. Just about a thousand years later, two women were heading to a tomb to cover a body with sweet odors and diverse spices out of love and respect for a different king. Except that king wasn't in the tomb. He was risen. In his life, Jesus never wandered. He never failed to obey the Father, always living by faith, always pleasing God, always darash. And when we put our faith in Jesus to save us from the judgment to come, his faithfulness, his obedience, his darash becomes ours. When it comes to the day of judgment, it will be based on his works that we are judged. And we will be found innocent because he is innocent. His life, faith in his life, will set us free from the shame and guilt of judgment and from the shame of the easy habit of not darash, of not seeking the Lord. So let me end this morning by asking you the same question I asked at the beginning. When is the last time you sought the Lord about a matter you were already confident you could do? When's the last time you sought the Lord about a matter you were confident you could already handle? Or perhaps we could ask some more questions. Do you claim to be a Christian yet and do you not exercise your faith? Perhaps this morning, are you one of those who have had a season of not living by faith? Has it been dry for you? Does a message like this perhaps expose something in your life? Maybe it's been a while since you've sought the Lord. Let me tell you, do not fear rejection. Come back. Your standing before God was earned and is being kept by Christ. And he was perfect. He always obeyed, never had a dry season, never failed to seek the Father. So ask forgiveness. Do not despair. Asa went to his grave and stayed there, having failed in the latter part of his life. Jesus went to the grave but rose again. We have a king that is alive, and so we should seek the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of Asa and the many different lessons it can teach us. Perhaps this morning, Father, though no important, more, more important lesson than to seek you. As we talked about this morning in Sunday school, to call on the name of the Lord to be saved, that is to darash. Or perhaps, Father, in the issues and problems we face, we should do more of seeking the Lord and perhaps, Father, even further.